I'm Emily. And I'm Kay. And this is Second Lead Syndrome. A podcast homage to our K-pop culture side pieces. I think this is a section where we can really talk about this is the first instance in which the mentors work with teams of BTS members to come up with these performances. And we'd like to talk a little bit about kind of what mentorship and teaching styles emerge from these uh, team exercises. Uh, So I think the first one we're going to talk about, which... For many fans who have already watched American Hustle Life, I think this was a very difficult moment for many ARMY to watch. And that is the encounter with Dante, who's the mentor for Jin and Suga in this episode. Um, so, Kay, maybe you want to start with how Dante approached their their project as a mentor and, and, how, and what issues that raised... Um, in terms of their relationship sure. to these intercultural collaborations. <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways if you speak a different language than somebody else to try to communicate with them. Um, and I think part of, you know, part of what you are doing when you're in that kind of encounter is the literal words, right? And the like, what is the task that you are trying to accomplish with people? But the other thing that you have to negotiate is what kind of relationship do we have? And so in Dante's case, I think his expectations about what the relationship of the mentor was to the mentees were radically different from what Jin and Suga were expecting. Um, and it seems to me like they didn't quite figure out um, some common ground. Um, I would think of Dante's sort of style, and this is not to say that he would think of it this way, but my read of it is that it takes kind of an authoritarian approach to um, a mentoring relationship where he feels like, I'm the native person here. Um, I'm I'm the one with the knowledge, and therefore I should be the one to make the decisions and to have more of a, a firm hand in guiding these mentees toward a given end point. At the same time, you hear Jin and Suga speculating like, he should, you know, really listen to our opinion and what we have to say. Um, and so they're like, they come with this idea of like wearing aprons and Dante doesn't want to. And he's like very... Um, vocal and like sort of dismissive of this idea he's not willing to do it um and they end up you know getting these like stuffed um bird dolls as like part of their for part of their performances like props and so then like dante's like what is this and he like like hits Jin with one of the dolls and i think that people definitely the show encouraged like um a reaction of shock to this um and it seems to kind of exemplify to me the way that Dante was like I am the authority and therefore I should be um listened to and in a way in order to like save face in this situation for this way that I think that you guys have messed up I'm gonna like chastise you Yeah, I think it was a stuffed ostrich. That's right. (laughs) Actually, because Dante was upset. Like the plan, the original plan was to get a chicken because they were going to make. And he was like, this isn't even a Korean chicken. Yeah, they were going to make Korean chicken and waffles. And yes, you can eat ostrich Um, here in South Africa. It is readily available in the grocery store. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, in L.A., it's it's less uh, common to to come by ostrich. And obviously they are making. They're making chicken. So the point was like to get the chicken. But their response was like, we couldn't find a stuffed chicken. So we had to use the stuffed ostrich. It's like the next best thing. Interestingly, if no one, if for those of you who have not had ostrich, it's actually red meat. So it's a very different, very different meat from, uh, from chicken. It's, it's much closer to kind of beef, like a really lean version of beef. Um, it's actually quite tasty. 
But uh, that that's wow, I <laughs> that's, no a that's a total <laughs> aside. Uh, but I think what's interesting about you know, and you can see this in each of the different mentoring relationships is this is a a really interesting example of what uh, some of us social scientists would perhaps call footing. And this is a term that I think gets unpacked very well in um, in a piece by a sociologist, Irving Goffman. Um, but maybe, Kay, uh, you could summarize a little bit about like how Goffman kind of conceives of footing and how that applies to this particular situation. Sure. So in any social interaction, you have to figure out who am I in this interaction and who is the other person? What is our relationship to each other in this particular moment? And then how does that get expressed in the words that we use, the way that we talk? So for example, the way that you hold a conversation with a teacher is different from the way that you hold a conversation with your friend. Um, And the way that you hold a conversation with your friend when you're planning an outing together is different from the way that you hold that conversation when you're having a disagreement. So you're figuring out what is the relationship that I have with this person in general and also what does this particular interaction need to do for me and then what kind of words and and moves do I need to make to hold on to this position. Yeah. And there are different moments where you see the footing changing between Dante, Suga, and Jin. Like, I think they they start off uh, very excited, like they're going to go to the swap meet, and then they like want to go get the churros. And then they're buying the churros. And I think they offer Dante the churros, right? Yeah, they offer him the churros as like an apology Oh, is that after? He's like, oh. <laughs> he's like not interested. Yeah, so that's one that's one example of footing, right? Like they're trying to change the footing in the situation by communicating and and you could argue food is one of the universal languages of connection, right? Like that that we break bread, the sociality of of sharing food and this goes even further into kind of the conversation that you know, we're going to later talk about about Coolio and how he talks about the relationship between kind of performance and connection and food um, as being all kind of linked to each other. But yeah, there's this instance in which they're using food as a kind of token to change the footing in, in the interactions and Dante's like absolute refusal and how that engenders a, a continued sort of conflictual relationship rather than a reconciliation in that case. Right. And it's to the point where Dante, because he's maintaining this like semi-adversarial authoritarian footing, there's little that he can do in the way of actually guiding what Jin and Sugar are actually doing. Um, So it's interesting to me the way that his footing seems to prevent him from being as effective as a mentor as he could be. Yeah. And then it's also, you know, footing wise, I think the other big moment, there's there's two other, I think, seminal moments in kind of where everything goes pear-shaped with this trio. So one is where he wants them to dance. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're actually the worst two of the less skilled dancers in BTS. <laughs> on top of it all. Like, they're not as comfortable with their dancing skills. It would be different if he was asking J-Hope and Jimin, I think, as opposed to someone like Jin, who is, as you see throughout the show, sort of notoriously alongside Rapmon, like, or at least their reputation as the least proficient in, in dance. <laughs> yeah, I think that moment is especially interesting given, like, how they're sort of they're starting to like open this conflict and then Dante's like asking them to do something that they clearly don't want to do and then there's not like really a good social reason for them to do it in that setting I think it kind of undermines like his goals except in so far as he wants them to do what he wants them to do yeah, because I think that that's that's what's interesting is like, what is Dante's objective? And then like, what is Jin and Suga's objective in their in their encounter? Because I think 
on both sides, it sets up this relationship where they don't want to learn from each other. Exactly, exactly. And I was just about to say, like, which is not to say that, like, Jin and Sugar are blameless or whatever, right? Like, they could have asked a lot more questions. They could have been more receptive to Dante's feedback. Like, there are a lot of ways that they could have managed the interaction that they chose not to. Yeah. Um, and I think the other kind of seminal moment is where basically Dante walks away and he goes, I think, back to the car and leaves Jin and Sugar to their own devices, basically. And then eventually actually walks away from the show completely in the subsequent episode. So there's this way in which, you know, footing is an incredibly important concept for thinking through like any social interactions that we have, but particularly when it comes to say something like what we might call, and again, you know, the idea of something being intercultural, we want to make sure that, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, you want to question a little bit like what that term means. But in this case, if you, if you have an intercultural encounter or you have a moment where you're trying to reach across difference the terms that you set for an engagement across differences is very reliant on footing and how the footing may change based on how that conversation is framed. So yeah, part of that is a gestural politics that's happening. Part of that is, um, yeah, like issues around power. Um, So in the Goffman piece, for example, he talks explicitly about how footing is very much about power relationships. And and in, in his case, he gives an example that is about a kind of masculine sort of power over a female reporter. Um, so it's a male politician who is setting the tone by the language that he's using for a kind of gender power dynamic that is framed by this language, framed by the kind of uh, gestural politics. I think that that's something to think through and and why that we wanted to point out this as a concept to talk about kind of the different mentoring relationships that play out in the show and particularly in this segment of of episode 2. Is there anything else you wanted to say about kind of the this particular set of interactions or this mentoring team? I don't think so, but it stands in stark contrast to another another team and i guess we can maybe turn now towards tony right who is operating on very different footing which i might call i'm like referring back to college student development what um Baxter Magolda might call good company in the sense that Tony is very much an equal collaborator with his team and his guidance comes in the form of input that doesn't assume that it should just be taken at face value. And he also seems genuinely open to the ideas and creativity that like the his team members are bringing to their efforts. What else did you notice about Tony and his team? Yeah, well, one of the things that I noticed was, um, again, this is something that isn't just about the language or the way that they're speaking to each other, because, you know, you could argue similarly, they're in a situation in terms of like ability to translate that's that's limited, but it's it's a willingness to sort of try things. So, for example, you know, we talked about how Dante, like they like Jin and Sugar want Dante to wear the apron and he refuses to wear the apron. Whereas J-Hope, Jungkook and Jimin like take Tony to the hanbok store and Tony willingly puts on a hanbok and he's just open to it. Like the, the, the gesture of, yes, I'm going to go with what you're showing me that that willingness um, embodied right, is this moment where he's he's partly setting the tone for saying, yes, I'm willing to sort of try to understand your context in both appearance and in attitude. Yeah, I also think it's interesting in light of our conversation about toxic masculinity that he <laughs> sort of takes it face value like that Jimin was going to wear like a woman's handbook. Oh. <laughs> he was just like, okay, we're cross-dressing like chill like (laughs) let's just go with it whereas I think that's something that um Dante would have very much like he would have recoiled at that idea so I thought that was really 
another another great example of how Tony is just kind of open to like what the members are putting out there. And even though like their end product ends up being much more Korean in a sense than American, at the same time, I think that it's likely that the BTS members benefited from this ethos of openness that Tony had. Like to me, this looks like a genuine cross-cultural exchange. And and I think like even though you were saying, well, it seems more Korean, like in terms of their output, yeah, you could say like, okay, they made Korean like kimchi fried rice, right? And that that is like more an explicitly Korean thing, or like the fact that they're wearing hanboks is explicitly a Korean thing. And then the drumming is like a style that's adopted from like, you know, a Korean style of, of, of traditional drumming, I believe. At the same time, what I think is interesting about it is like, and again, this is why we would we would say, well, it's intercultural, but then like culture isn't pure anyway. So like that sort of idea of two distinct entities kind of coming together has its problems in, in its assumptive, in its assumptions. You can see the way in which like, there is actually this bleed over, particularly with the kind of drumming aspect of it, because they're not actually using the traditional like Korean drums to produce the sound. They're remixing it with like different utensils. And and even if they don't aren't explicitly alluding to, say, something like stomp or, uh, you know, street performers in America who use like buckets or other everyday objects to create like that whole history of music even using everyday objects to create rhythm I think that like actually there's this way in which you find that there's there's connections through yeah that they find connections through kind of like means that aren't like they're still languages like they're the language of rhythm right like that there's a way in which like the language of rhythm is is actually something that like isn't purely one cultures or another, but it's like this way in which they're using rhythmic language to sort of communicate something in their performance to the audience and communicate something to each other, which I think is is really interesting about like their choices in terms of like what this project produced and how you could argue that the footing itself is like what led to using these particular choices to create the performance. Thanks for listening to Second Lead Syndrome. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love to have your support so that we can post all our episodes online and keep them available. We've got some great thank yous like exclusive content on our website and shout outs in our episode credits. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash second lead syndrome. That's 2ND lead syndrome. And thanks again for listening. So you were saying that um, Tony is kind of the like, great accompaniment for your journey, right, in terms of mentorship style. So let's turn now to Nate. What would you say was Nate's mentorship style? So Nate's a classic example of the best friend type of of mentor or guide in the sense that he seems to want to just go along with whatever the members say and not offer them a whole lot of feedback other than positive like yes let's do this which on the one hand you want to build a good relationship with your students or your mentees but on the other hand you are also there to serve as like some kind of guardrail so that they don't make decisions that end up being destructive or that prevent them from learning. So the pitfall of the best friend model can be that, you know, you you don't rein in some excesses when you need to. And the the people that you're mentoring don't necessarily learn as much about like what's okay, what's not okay, or they don't push themselves as far as they could. Yeah, and you see that in the resulting performance and and even in the process itself of Ratmon and V trying to develop this idea of imitating famous performers as their kind of strategy for addressing the performance. And then they're making literally like a sandwich. So... <laughs> Like, not even a good sandwich, but like a sloppy sandwich. <laughs> like, that is very true. They could have made like a nice sandwich despite whatever like cooking limitations they had. I mean, they're no gin 
in the kitchen. And I think most BTS ARMY would know that Jin is probably the most skilled member as far as cooking is concerned. Yeah, the result is just sort of not good execution kind of across the board. And like, what could you say about sort of Nate's role in in that? Yeah, I mean, it seemed like Nate really sat back and just kind of let things unfold. And, you know, you see even in their performance, there's like random people who just show up and are like doing random things that don't really make sense. And, you know, we have talked about this quite a bit, like this really problematic performance that feels a lot like blackface um, without like actual blackface. And I don't know if you want to say like more about how how you read that part of the of the performance. Yeah, well, I think like one of the ways that I read it was even in the initial preparation, right? This is where the best friend mentorship model started to show its weaknesses because at the initial stage of conception, uh, if you notice which artists they were choosing to imitate, it was Stevie Wonder, Coolio himself, they were imitating these artists, and when they were looking for the costumes to imitate the artists, what they were shopping for, what they were looking for, part of it was wigs, if I'm not mistaken. So that even, even if it wasn't actively putting on the makeup that characterizes partly the practice of blackface, blackface historically isn't just about painting your face. It's a whole kind of repertoire and it's a whole history of racial impersonation, right? So blackface is just one kind of subset of a larger repertoire of racial impersonation that has a very long history, um, not only in kind of American culture, but you can see it in a lot of other um, examples as well. One that springs to mind for me is having lived in the Netherlands, there's a holiday celebration during Christmas where Santa Claus, um, their version of Santa Santa Claus, which is called Santa Claus, uh, basically has his helpers. And the helpers are called Swarte Piet. And in Dutch, that literally translates as Black Piet or Black Peter. And it's all of these Santa's helpers, quote unquote, that basically have black facial makeup that they put on. And that has a direct relationship to slavery in the Dutch context. But what happens is a lot of Dutch people have just read it as a kind of neutral character that's part of the Christmas pantheon. And they've sort of revised the narrative over the years to abstract it from that historical root of being linked to slavery, being linked to the desecration of blackness. And now the sort of myth that Dutch people tell themselves to extricate, you know, any kind of responsibility for this history is to say, oh, it's it's just soot. It's soot on his face. And it's not actually racist, you know. But I mean, there have been several documentaries researchers, scholars who've pointed out that it's actually embedded in this much longer history of kind of Dutch exploitation of black bodies and the kinds of racial hierarchies that have been created around that. So, you know, that's just one example that isn't just confined to the U.S. So, you know, blackface and other practices of racial impersonation are pretty much about as old as racism itself. <laughs> and and this is a specific case where, yeah, they're not putting on black face makeup in the way that actually in the Korean media, we've seen that um, in other instances. But it is still a kind of subset of this practice of racial impersonation that assumes that you can you can take on these racial characteristics and and sort of appropriate them or see them as caricatures. And I think that that's part of the problem with forms of racial impersonation. I mean, it isn't the only issue at hand in, in the dynamics of, of racial impersonation, but it is one of those kinds of things that sets up a particular power dynamic of like, oh, I'm a person who can come in and like take on and off these these kinds of features of racial identity in a way that people who actually live through those racial identities cannot. Right. And I think that 
I think it's important to note that there's a difference between like doing a cover of Stevie Wonder that is respectful and creative and then doing this kind of like impersonation that exaggerates grossly what are the stereotypical kinds of things associated with like black performance and so for me that was really the the even more so than the wigs like the thing that I was like this feels like blackface their impersonations they were trying to be humorous but it just came across as like being mocking and disrespectful rather than you know like a genuine engagement with those people's art Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think this is where, like, there's a limit to just calling something cultural appropriation and saying, oh, that's wrong, like, outright, just being like, you know, oh, that's cultural appropriation, or it's like, oh, these people are too sensitive about cultural appropriation. Like, I don't think that, I think the conversation is more complex than that, you know? It's really about the the power dynamics in each situation where you are utilizing or drawing from any form of performance that is crosses a, a kind of racial boundary or a, or a particular boundary of, of social identity um, is that there's always these questions of what are the power dynamics involved in that, right? They're never as clean cut as we think they are. So I think that's where you get into like why this also feels like a very disrespectful sort of enactment of using Stevie Wonder, using Coolio's material. Because again, it's meant it's meant to kind of caricature and it isn't caricaturing them to make any sort of critical commentary about their work. I think that that's also part of part of the problem as well. Um, there's a scholar who's written about it's a, it's a classic book about um, actually blackface minstrelsy in 19th and maybe early 20th century America. I mean, it's been maybe 15 years since I've read this text, but um, the title of it, it's, it's by a scholar named Eric Lott, L-O-T-T. The, the main title of it is Love and Theft. And I think it's this really interesting way of encapsulating what these kind of mixed and complicated dynamics of racial impersonation or appropriation take on is that it isn't, and that's why it's so difficult to talk about, because it isn't just an outright necessarily an outright disrespecting, right? Like there's a way in which there's a kind of affinity or almost philia, like a weird sort of attraction or curiosity that also attends racial forms of racial impersonation. And I think that's why it's difficult for people to like necessarily always wrap their head around it and make sense of, of, of racial impersonation. But yeah, I mean, those are all the kinds of underlying political dynamics that Ratmon and V don't quite understand. And the problem is, I think, with Nate as the mentor is whether or not he understood those histories or how did he read those questions. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what we said in our first episode about where is the reflexivity and who's thinking about these things? Is anyone thinking about these things? What was Nate's gut response to this? I would be curious to know, like, yeah, like you said, like, did he see it as problematic? Did he just decide that it wasn't really worth trying to fight them on it? Or did he not see it as problematic at all? Yeah. And and this is where we get into like, we can transition now, I think, into because we can't answer those questions without directly talking to Nate about them. But I do think that that's where like, you as a viewer can kind of think about, oh, how is this actually linked to all of these larger histories and bring that back around to when they did the actual performance for Coolio, his response, right? So I think I've read plenty of comments where this particular episode has been posted, where people have been very upset at Coolio and said, why is he getting so angry at Ratmon and V? Why is he being so mean to them? And it just seemed like a lot of people watching that thought like why is why is he so angry and the the offense that they could read if you didn't think about these histories of racial impersonation is oh they're making fun of coolio directly and that's why he's getting upset like i think that's if you don't think about those histories of racial impersonation i think that's where your head would logically go is oh he's making fun of them and he can't take a joke of them making fun of him 
I don't know if you could see any other reads on it, but that's sort of my take. You know, one other possible read is that Coolio is upset that they didn't really seem to take the assignment seriously. They're making the <laughs> the most unfortunate sandwich in the world, from what I can tell, right? Like, <laughs> you find out later on that, like, Coolio is a very serious cook. Like, he he takes this as seriously as, as part of his art as his rapping. So to see Ratman and V not really engaged in this assignment in good faith, like, I would be upset too because they're not getting what they should be getting out of the assignment. And he explains that to them later. In addition to this, like, sort of minstrelsy thing going on that's deeply uncomfortable, they didn't put in the effort and they didn't show the creativity and the product that they ended up with was not good. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's multiple levels to it, right? And I think that, yeah, you have that level at which they're just doing a bad job, period. Then you have this level of they're basically ridiculing Coolio to his face. And then you have this additional layer, which is, I think, the part that like that's why we we're sort of having this podcast is to unpack this very difficult moment is it's linked to these larger histories that, you know, people can very easily dehistoricize or not even know about. And I think it's it's part of a larger issue where where commentators have called out you know, various K-pop artists for engaging in racial impersonation. I'm not confining that to blackface because, you know, one of the things I think about is like shiny and those those awful sombreros and ponchos that they wore. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) As another example of sort of racial impersonation. But basically. Or what was the one that Super Junior did? Mamacita. Oh, yeah. That was that was like set in the Wild West or whatever. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> if I remember correctly, there were one or two offensive caricatures in that as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's a plethora of examples you could point to. I mean, you could go to like, I think it's Bang, 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 where Taeyong is wearing an, like a feather headdress. I mean, there's just so many examples in K-pop that we could point to for days. And, you know, I think that that's part of why we wanted to have this conversation about this particular moment in the show, because it isn't just isolated to American hustle life. It's a larger phenomenon in the K-pop industry where people are like, oh, they didn't know any better. Or even the fans themselves are not aware of those particular historical contexts and just see it as people like attacking their faves. And I think maybe like what I'd like you to do is talk about why it is that it's not good to just outright protect your faves at all costs. (laughs) Well, this is, I mean, it's very similar to the best friend model. I mean, we call it the best friend model of fandom, right? If you don't question and critique the ways that your, your faves are presenting themselves, then they never learn and grow and you and your fellow fans never learn and grow either. So I think it's really important to have these kinds of conversations and to try to understand the historical context and the, you know, the broader social context in which these interactions are happening. And it's not, you know, it's not that we're hating on BTS, but we're saying these are some ways that they might be harming, especially particular segments of their fandom, a.k.a our friends, right? Like people that we us since we have a connection with, in addition to larger populations who may or may not know about BTS, but who are nevertheless dehumanized by these kinds of um, performances. So it's the right thing to do to say this is problematic and it's harmful to people and BTS can do better. And I think that's what Coolio ultimately said to them is, I know you guys can do better. Even though it seems harsh or very strict the way that he like just turned his back on them, like what they were doing was pretty egregious. Mm, And exactly. I think it was at the end when he said, you know, you guys didn't impress me and I'm pretty disappointed. And that's because I know you can do better. Like that's so important. And that's ultimately what I think being a fan, a responsible fan is about is like when you know your face can do better, you let them know. Absolutely. And I think like that's because ultimately you are, I wouldn't say necessarily protecting them, but you are supporting them if you hold them accountable in a way that says like, I want to see you do better rather than 
I'm just going to completely ignore this and like let you go down the road to hell that's paved with quote unquote good intentions. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely right. You know, and I, I think that's something that like moving forward in terms of like, what do we want people to take away from this podcast? I think it is giving people, again, these sorts of tools, these ways of thinking or reflecting about K-pop that ultimately not just push you to like hold your faves accountable, but holding yourself accountable too. Like, I think that's what really, that's where we can, I think, make even more of an impact. Like I don't, I don't imagine that that many K-pop artists are going to be listening to what we're saying specifically, but at least those of you who are fans that are listening, even if it's not necessarily like a change in the artists, because whether or not they're actually like listening to the fans about these particular things is, is questionable. Um, But yeah, for fans themselves, not just about how they hold their faves accountable in K-pop, but how do you hold other public figures accountable? How do you hold leaders in your community accountable for these things? I mean, this is just, it's like, yeah, we're using K-pop as an example because it's a fun and sort of, you know, like a, 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 one way to address these things, but it isn't the only way. Like these kinds of strategies, these ways of thinking extend well beyond kind of the realm of K-pop. Exactly, exactly. And it's also about like what kind of community are we setting up for ourselves? Even if this feedback never gets back to our faves, we can tell each other that we don't support blackface or we don't support these sort of problematic ways of, of representing other people and we're going to do something different here amongst ourselves. Exactly. I mean, it is true. It's about like building better fan communities, fan communities that are more inclusive, fan communities that are sensitive to these histories of racial discrimination and inequality. Like those are really important things to creating a fandom that's a better community to be a part of too. I think there's also just too many fan communities that yeah, if you have a dissenting remark or if you've experienced pain because of what your faves have done, finding the community that supports and understands that is really important to like how you experience your pop culture. And not only how you experience your pop culture, but the kinds of like resiliency that you build for dealing with real life too. Absolutely. I think that there's so many ways in which like a supportive fan community can help you develop a set of tools that you then take out with you into your interactions with other people who aren't a part of that community. Yeah. I t- so it's really about like making us all stronger all the way around. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I really think like that's also very personal for us because I think we connected not just because we love K-pop or we love the Ken Duel friendship Obviously, those were great things that brought us together, but it's not what's kept us together as friends. I think it is these kinds of conversations that, yeah, obviously involve a lot of K-pop, but I think we've been able to help and support each other in many other ways, professionally and personally, I think. And those those are conversations that you guys don't see or like hear recorded, but they're happening between us. And K-pop is just one vector through which we are building a community of support between each other and kind of our larger circle of, of people. Yes, absolutely. What a lovely way to segue out of the blackface conversation, right? I think it's important to end on sort of positive notes. And the episode itself ends in a kind of, you know, Coolio, like we want to point out those kinds of historical or social context things because I think perhaps even though Coolio went there to a certain degree by telling them that these things were not okay, there were still kind of like missed opportunities. But even so, he, he kind of, at the end, turned it around to a sort of reconciliation note. And I think that, like, that was, in general, a good thing, even if he maybe missed out on the opportunity to give them even more critical instruction or more kind of historical context. Because as our previous discussion of, you know, Shaka Zulu and all these other things, how much Coolio wants to engage in those things or recognize those things openly um, in that space or in his interactions with BTS is another question entirely. But yeah, I think 
the other thing we wanted to talk about in this episode was uh, Coolio's sort of philosophy about performance. Um, and I think, Kay, maybe you could give our listeners a sort of a few things to chew on with respect to, to that. Sure. Well, I'm going to ask for your help on <laughs> on some of the theory. But so Coolio has this theory of performance that is, I think, pretty iconic and that he makes the BTS numbers repeat after him. So when he brings out his cooking masterpiece and he tells them if it looks good, if it smells good, if it tastes good, it is good. And I think that this is a really even though it it doesn't, you know, have a lot of big words in it, but it's actually like quite theoretical in the sense that he's saying like if the thing seems to be good, then you can you can take it as being good or you can evaluate it as being good. And this made us think a little bit of theories of performativity. And if we think about for Coolio, like his rap is one way that he performs. But what if his cooking is also a way that he performs? And it made us think of Austin, whose um, whose book is titled How to Do Things with Words. And basically his argument is that when you say certain things, you're performing those things. The quintessential example is that, you know, I now pronounce you husband and wife. The act of saying those words actually does the act of marrying two people. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, Butler or add anything about Austin? Yeah, sure. So I think the really important idea of performing, right, this idea that performing is both asserting something linguistically, but then also that like by the asserting something linguistically, it's actually doing something physically or materially, that that is kind of at the core of of what Austin is arguing. And, and that doesn't mean that everything you say turns into something material or turns into something physical. But what he says is that if it is, in his terms, felicitous, if something is felici- felicitous, it means that if something is linguistically uttered or if something is asserted through language, that then it is also asserted in a kind of physical and material sense, then it is felicitous. So like if you say, I want a million dollars and then you never get the million dollars, then it's infelicitous. Like the language doesn't match up with like the the thing that's that's being enacted or not enacted. Whereas if you say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, then the act of saying it also enacts a sort of actual relationship between these two people that is reflected socially. So it bears out. It is felicitous. Um, and so that's basically what Austin is arguing, is that through an act, through this this kind of notion of performance, which is the combination of utterance and embodiment. And, you know, people have argued about what does performance mean, but basically a lot of ideas about how people use the concept of performance in scholarly literature um, originates from Austin's conceptualization of it as a kind of felicitous combination of utterance or gesture or some kind of linguistic token alongside a kind of physical or material or social manifestation of that. Does that sound accurate to you as far as a kind of thumbnail? It's a thumbnail sketch, right, of of Austin. But um, again, we're always here to sort of give you that thumbnail sketch so that then you'll like click on the thumbnail and discover the real world of like the deeper world of these theorists. Um, So then you come to a scholar like Judith Butler, who's probably another seminal scholar with respect to how um, academics, theorists um, understand this concept of performance. So basically, Butler has adopted Austin's sense of performativity and then applied it to how people's subjectivities or that's like the fancy scholarly word for like you know, your identity, how you make sense of like your personhood in the world. I mean, again, this is a thumbnail sketch of an entire philosophical concept that has many, many angles to it. But, you know, the short version of it is basically that our social identities um, and and for Butler, that's um, largely issues of gender and sexuality are performed. So it's this idea that we are constantly 
performing our identities in a variety of different ways, whether that's how we talk, but also how we live in the world, that everything is kind of a, a continual enactment of our identities. And what that means is that identities kind of have elements of fluidity or elements of play in it in terms of like how you perform them. That's one kind of way in which she says performance is iterative. So iterative meaning you reiterate it. Like if you guys know the word reiterate, it means to like say something over again. It's to assert. So an iteration is an assertion of something, right? That basically means, for example, like when Butler's talking about gender, that something like gender identity isn't as stable or innate as we think it is because our gender identities are constantly being performed through the clothes that we wear, through the ways that we speak, through, you know, the ways we see ourselves. You know, there's so many different ways that our gender identities are formed. Um, And that isn't to say that, you know, those things are completely things that you can take on and off at the drop of a hat by any means. But what she's saying is that they are, you know, constantly reiterated, that they are performed, that there there is a level of involvement in terms of like you as a person uh, that where you're constantly enacting those gender identities, right? And and you're enacting them not without social pressures. So again, that's why I'm saying they're not as sort of like you know up to the individual as people might think. That often our processes of socialization shape like what we think is possible and what we think is not possible. And so I think what Butler is asking people to do is say, if you know that it is iterative, if you know that it's it's something that can be performed, it means that you can then begin to question the sort of static or innate notion of identity. And I think that's what she's getting at. That's one of the things that I find really fascinating to think about with, with Butler is like that there's no essential gender identity right like there's nothing underneath like your performance is all that there is so the things that you do are what make up who you are and you can change those things again as you said like not without social pressure but there's nothing about you or about me that has to be that way and I think that that seems to tie directly to this to Coolio's theory because he's saying there's if it looks good, smells good, tastes good, there's nothing else underneath that that you have to analyze. Like if it is good in those ways, then it's good. That's all that there is to it. So I think that that's like a really interesting way to tie in like the senses and the act of like cooking and like eating together with this like notion of performance through Butler and Austin. Yeah, I mean, I think basically what Coolio is doing is saying that these notions of performance, with the, which these theorists have already said, you know, performance isn't just you getting up on a stage and performing. We're performing at every moment of our lives and it's shaping who we are and it's shaping our sense of who we are. And I think that's the thing is that like Coolio extends the notion of performance beyond sort of your typical notions of what a hip hop performer is supposed to express their identity through. And he's saying that to BTS. <laughs> yes. And it's I think that's really important, especially because BTS, like as a team, like they have rappers, vocalists, and dancers. Traditionally, the four elements of hip hop are rapping or emceeing, DJing or turntablism, graffiti, and um, b-boying or breakdancing. And BTS doesn't even cover all those elements, which is fine. But Coolio is saying, well, actually, there's a hip hop ethos that can pervade any kinds of activities that you're doing. Right. So it's much more than just your performance on a stage. It's your performance in any aspect of your life that can be hip hop and that can allow you to be hip hop or embody hip hop in some way. And he says this at the end where he's telling them, you know, you know, if you're going to do music, do it with your whole heart and don't don't just put in a little effort because the performance is the thing itself. Mm, absolutely. And I think what's so interesting is that like even at the beginning of his like introduction when he's initially like, I'm here to train you. He says outright that like hip hop saved his life. 
So it's this idea that, yeah, for him, hip hop, in as much as it's part of performance, it's like performance that is like performance and living, like the boundary between performance and just living is blurred for Coolio. And like, I think that's how it kind of connects to these other, you know, sort of more scholarly, you know, notions of, of performance. I think Coolio fits right in with them uh, in a in a kind of beautiful way. <laughs> I mean, there are so many things about hip hop that are powerful. But for me, that's like the real draw is to understand how people are making sense of their world and how they're representing it in really intellectual and complex ways that the Academy traditionally doesn't recognize. Um, but more and more so, I think, is becoming open to that kind of theorizing. Yeah, and I think for armies as well, it's an opportunity for you guys to appreciate like what BTS is doing with their own music and the opportunities that they have to also, I think, process their worlds, right? Like I think a lot of what, why people love BTS is because what they've created does allow for people in certain ways to do that too. Wow, I feel like we've we've done so much like really thick stuff today. <laughs> this is a this is a really like thick episode. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I'm glad we covered a lot of those things. Um, yeah, do you have any sort of last words about this particular episode? I don't have any last words. I mean, just that there's there's a lot that I think a lot of ground that we did cover. And there's lots of stuff that we haven't dissected yet, and we'd love to hear other folks' thoughts. Um, so tweet us, email us, let us know what your thoughts are, what questions you still have. We're excited to hear from you. Absolutely. We'd love to broaden the community of discussants in this dialogue that we're having. So we welcome more voices in the conversation. Definitely. But yeah, I think it's a good time for us to just wrap up. Um, we're really looking forward to hearing from all of you about what you're thinking in terms of listening to our conversations, um, feedback. We'd love to find ways to improve, but also like speak to different topics that you're interested in as well. But yeah, thanks again for listening and stay on the hustle. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Connect with us on Twitter at secondlead, that's 2ND, lead, or email us at secondleadsyndrome, 2ND, leadsyndrome at gmail.com. You can find additional content and links to full audio and video mentioned on Second Lead Syndrome at secondleadsyndrome.wordpress.com. Our theme was composed by Kevin Vitz Wong. You can hear more of his music at soundcloud.com slash arsprosthetica.